Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about all kinds of curious endings of all kinds of interesting things. I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. And today we're talking again to our friend, Jesse Kepler. He is the uh, main, I don't know, the artist behind Robo, the comic, which is one of my favorite comics ever. And he's going to be starting as Kickstarter for the fifth. Yep. The fifth uh, comic book here coming out soon. So we just wanted to catch up with him because we're really interested in this project and we wanted to see what he's up to. So welcome, Jesse. Thank you. And it's wonderful for you to say that it's your favorite comic book ever. It's, that's a, it's a really big compliment. Thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. It's really cool. Like, I really enjoy Robo. It's got all kinds of really, really interesting little backstories and little bits of things. And the art by uh, Renzo is gorgeous you had another artist beforehand but then um like kind of midway through you got another artist and you've had Renzo Podesta is that what his name is uh yeah yeah Yeah, you have Renzo now and it's just still gorgeous uh it's really an amazing story I'm really into it like I wish it was a movie (laughs) I really do let's let's cross our fingers for that one I mean yeah maybe someday (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is um, this fifth issue that's coming out. The Kickstarter that's it's launching actually in two days, so probably already launched by the time you hear this podcast, but um, this will be Renzo and I's third issue together. Uh, we've been working together a little bit over a year now. You know, I think it's going pretty good. I think like Phil, the, the artist for the first two, two issues, and I worked really well together as well. Um, one of the things that I learned um, from working with Renzo is that when you're working in black and white, which the comic is, uh, more detail isn't always better. Yeah. His pages look great in black and white uh, because there's not a, like a void of feeling empty space just to get those detail lines in there. So the thing that I love, I think the most about Robo is just the depth of the world that it's in. It's just, and so I know you pretty well, Jesse. So it doesn't surprise me, but it definitely comes across in the comic. Like I know where this comes from in your brain because I know (laughs) you, but when other people are reading it, like I'm always wondering, like, can they really do they really like, can they get into the depth of like what's going on in this world? It's, it's so fascinating to me. So you and I are not too far apart in age. So I think you and I grew up in the era of, you know, when we first started in the cold war. Yeah. I'm that old. (laughs) When I was growing up in the cold war, like towards the tail end of the cold war, like 
there was actually a substantial fear that the Russians were like the end of the world was nigh and like for real, because the Russians had nukes and we had nukes and, you know, Reagan didn't want anybody to nuke each other. And there was this, you know, big thing about like people getting rid of nukes, but it was always like this weird Russia USA standoff kind of thing. We were like frenemies for a little bit towards the end. It was just a very strange relationship between Russia and the U.S. And of course, it's come back up again with our recent um, recent world events. So it's interesting to me when people um, my age-ish, because you're a little bit younger than I am. Um, not that much, though. Yeah, not that much. It's interesting to me when we make art because there's it's very much like kind of dealing with this knowledge of, I know it's like it's a, apocalyptic and like seeing where the craziness of capitalism has gone in our society and like extrapolating it out. Yeah, I say this a lot, um, especially when I'm being cynical or bleak, but, um, you know, nothing has gotten better for my whole life. Mm-hmm. I was born uh in 79 like a couple of days before reagan won the presidency um and you know there are things that have been good but as far as like existing systems like wealth inequality has gotten worse uh you know workers rights have gotten worse environment has gotten worse like all of these things just aren't tended to yeah Um, And you talk about the depth of the world. That's kind of where I'm coming from on a lot of this stuff. So the backstory, which isn't super apparent in the comics yet, is that the world was kind of on the brink and humanity, you know, realizing that they couldn't fix it, handed over everything to a benevolent artificial intelligence which sort of got the framework up and running to fix the environment, to, you know, solve the food crisis, those sorts of things. And these are, these are not really in the comic yet, but the next thing that happened was good old human greed came back and a bunch of people said, we don't need this uh, artificial intelligence telling us what to do. Uh, the world needs to be a better place for people who want to work hard to, to see the benefit of their work. Um, And so they overthrew the artificial intelligence and established this order of essentially corporate government. Um, It's not really nations or states like we know it, but there are corporations which, you know, provide you essentially like territory, sovereignty, uh, housing, food, and uh, policing, which is sort of the company that the main character works for in Robo. He works for a defense company or a defense technology company, which their main service that they provide to their shareholders is security. So he's like a paid superhero pretty much with a, like almost like a mech outfit. Yeah. Um, And he, he thinks the main character believes that he's supposed to be a hero Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, in, in much the, the way that you might expect from a corporate standpoint, like just saving people for free is not a path to profit. So (laughs) 
Robo is actually supposed to be a, a marketing tool for the company or a PR tool to make them look good so that they don't have to do a whole lot of actual policing or a lot of actual security. People think they're great because, you know, Robo does things that they heard about. And uh, at the end of the first issue, uh, he gets in trouble for missing a sales demo because he was out looking for something that he thought was dangerous in the city. So uh, <laughs> you're following the issue and he's doing these things that a normal superhero would do. And he comes back to the office building and gets, you know, essentially chewed out by his boss for missing a sales meeting. <laughs> I think it's uh, very interesting how uh, you, Sarah started this conversation with looking at the, the sort of the Cold War misery, but then you've tied very neatly into extremely current. You know, like you said, nothing's gotten better, but it also feels almost like nothing's changed <laughs> in that yeah. the problems that are problems are still the prevalent problems. They're just significantly worse. Yeah, that's, um, man, that one like just kind of makes me sad in a way. Like, so with everything that's happened in the last month or so, uh, a variety of things in the news that make you upset. I've been listening to a lot of punk rock and, uh, you know, it's, it's good to get me amped up and, and a little energetic and, you know, I'll hear a song and they're talking about the environment or they're talking about people you know, not being able to afford food or whatever. Uh, regular punk rock kind of problems, a little bit of politics, a little bit of like angry at the system. And then you check and it's a song from 1983. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, could have been written yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, so what are we doing? If punk rockers are still mad about the same stuff. Yeah, I, uh, there's a bit of a collective gasp, I think, a couple of weeks ago when, you know, our grandparents, our grandmothers were just like, you have got to be kidding me that we rolled back Roe v. Wade. They just, yeah. it was just a collective disbelief that it's, it's just been rolled back stuff that we've thought that we've won or we're fighting for, or it's still a problem. So where does it go from there? Like, where do we go from there? What do you guys have any theories about like hope where we go, what to do. If you were robo, what would you do? Like there's a very real story arc that I find funny and funny in like kind of a sad, but uh, knowing like, I know it, I know this feeling in my heart where you think you're part of a good thing. And then you end up realizing that it it's kind of a house of cards. And I feel like Robo, um, the main character in it, the guy who is Robo, like actually goes through this kind of realizes that he's not helping anything really. So uh, very astute of you uh, to bring this one up since that is actually that's where I really want to go with the story. That's, that's the overall message that I really want to tell, which mm -hmm. is how do you actually save the world? Yeah. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I finally found like the sentence I I've known where I wanted to go basically since I started making the comic book again. And um, it was just kind of a mystery of how to get there. And I just kind of happened upon the sentence of 
thinking about Charles, the main character saying, why would I want to save this world? Right. And so a lot of superhero comics, even ones that are supposed to be subversive, really end up restoring the status quo. Mm. The superheroes end up being firefighters. They're stopping a villain who wants to destroy something or, you know, change something for the worse. And even the X-Men are largely doing that a lot of times because, you know, that's what makes for a good serial comic uh, is to be able to return to that baseline. Uh, But I want to eventually get to the point where my main character decides that he needs to change the world or help to do that. And I think, you know, from a real life perspective, that's where we're at. Like we can't just hope that things are going to get there on their own. It's, it's time for us to change a lot of stuff. You know, it's time for us to change how we engage with politics uh, with regards to things that we think are settled, but it's also time for us to change how we interact with things like climate change and uh, I don't know, dictatorships in Europe or, you know, whichever other major problems come up, like as people of the earth, we need to do more and not just hope that the people in power will figure it out. I totally get that. So last week, um, and the episode is out now. I did an episode about litter and I kind of talked about that towards the end. And I totally agree with you on this, that um, it's not, nobody's coming to save us. Right. Um, and we shouldn't rely on some pie in the sky technology or some AI because we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, people were before in robo, like it's not coming. We're all going to have to figure out what we're going to do to uh, make this better. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I don't know what it is for everyone. I don't have any answers for anyone. I just know, you know, like what I am interested in and what I can do. So yeah, that's, I'm right there with you. I understand. That was my main point. Well, I've been watching you talk about the litter thing, and I think that's that's a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, studies have shown that people are less likely to pollute environments that are not already a little polluted. Yes, I talked about that. Good, that's you that I really picked that up from. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here I am regurgitating your own little facts here. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that makes a difference. And you know, not everybody can devote their life to it. There are other things that need to be done to, you know, make life worth with living. But um, if everybody did a little bit more and, you know, a little bit more in terms of something that's a little difficult, then we're a little bit closer. Yeah. And the next time somebody asks you to do more, it's not quite so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so earlier today, somebody was bemoaning like, oh, environmentalists are telling us to recycle. And the thought that pops through my head is no, environmentalists were telling us to recycle in the (laughs) seventies, right? When we still had like 80 years to solve this problem. (laughs) Oh God, Uh, it's going to be 80 years from 1970 in 2050. Yeah. God. All right. It's an but existential yeah, like, evening. I'm dreading a lot. I know. I'm sorry. I added some dread. 
<laughs> but yeah, so like, if, if the problem is, uh, you know, there's a train coming down the tracks, you should probably get up and move in the next 15 minutes. That advice changes the closer the train gets. And um, I think it it's taken so long for people to get on board with some of that advice, whatever it is, you know, get up off the tracks and mosey on out of here or recycle your plastics, reduce, reuse, recycle, you know, by this point, the train's, train's already upon us. And so now, now you have to do something more painful. Now it feels like, oh, they're asking for so much. When if we had just started earlier, <laughs> <laughs> then the la- you know, the thing that would be asking for now would only seem like a little bit on top of what we were all already used to doing. I feel like, uh, because I don't think it's individual people's fault that we're here, obviously. It's no. it's not completely our fault. I mean, we could, we could have um, really demanded a lot of corporations do a lot of different stuff throughout the years. Um, it's a huge problem is corporations and the things that they have been allowed to get away with is kind of unbelievable. Um, so I'm kind of going into the corporations in Robo because they're very interesting to me. I find them like the hyper, like, what am I trying to say here? They're, they're like the corporations would be if we allow them to continue the way that they are like, and, you know, and I'm talking about the bad stuff corporations do. Like almost completely divorced from the existence of humans as something other than material goods. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So they are completely unregulated. There are no governments in, in that world. Um, They can do whatever they want. And the thing that holds them back is worrying about what other corporations will do in response. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the world of the comic, um, because they overthrew the artificial intelligence, there is a, essentially, it's a, kind of a treaty, but it's an agreement between corporations not to develop strong AI. And that could be a real benefit to some corporations mission, you know, they could get there a lot faster by having an artificial intelligence, but there's this agreement not to do so. I think, you know, it's very familiar to us, especially as Americans, like, well, what if I just did it anyway? And that comes down to like those corporations in the comic worrying that the competitors that they have will just actually do something violent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so for people who have read the fourth issue, I don't explain it a lot, but at a certain point in the past, um, you know, Robo's at a press conference, he's, he's demonstrating and, uh, being a part of their presentation and then a rival corporation, like drops some mech work, like some attacking mechs into new Chicago. And so he flies off to, to fight them off. You know, in our world, we would consider that, oh, that's, you know, state to state aggression. It's an act of war. It's an act of terrorism. In this case, it's just, hey, let, let's, you know, see if we can cause some chaos. And maybe while that's happening, we can steal some of their intellectual property or you know, whatever <laughs> else they would be interested in doing while that's going on. What I try to illustrate with that is that when the source of power is not beholden to anything 
but their own desires, they do damaging things. Um, and one of the things that you'll see at the very beginning of the fifth issue, uh, which is led up to from the third and fourth issues a little bit, is the people who live in New Chicago who aren't shareholders, they don't even have secure access to food. And so there's these riots, these protests that are breaking out in the city, and they're trying to decide what to do about it because it makes them look bad as a security company. But at the same time, like, they don't want to just give away food. <laughs> so, uh, because you know, the shareholders would dislike that. Yeah. Yeah. So, the way that the world works in the comic is the, the way that you achieve services is you buy a share of a certain company. So, you would buy a share in the new Chicago Corporation to have housing in that city. And you would buy a share of the uh, NCCRA, which I don't talk about too much, but it's basically the corporate alliance for the region of the world to be immune from being deported at will. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, I just don't like you. Just kick them out of the city or kick them out of the area. Uh, just forced relocation. Um, and then you would buy a share in Sunburst, the main company that, that created and, and employs Robo, to essentially have someone to enforce your property rights. If you don't own a share in one of those companies, you don't get those things. It's, uh, you know, it's like we always sort of warn people about uh, if there were privatized fire departments, like, do you have a subscription to this fire department? Well, you don't, yeah. you're not going to put your house out. Which was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a thing in Chicago, right? In the, in the fire of Chicago? Probably. I know... Now I'll look into it so we can be correct. But <laughs> yeah, I actually don't know. Yeah, the Great Fire of Chicago is like a a main storyline if you grew up in Illinois. <laughs> oh, I have like ancestors that met during the Great Chicago Fire because one of them only spoke Gaelic. She was a maid, you know, wow. like a hotel or something. And the guy she ended up marrying spoke Gaelic and English, and he like she was really confused about what was going on, and he explained to her what was happening and got her the hell out of Chicago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The, we all, you know, growing up, I always heard the story. So-and-so's cow kicked over the can and then Chicago <laughs> was on fire. Basically. We should do an episode on that. We totally should. And the only reason it wasn't like put out was because it was just blazing. It was just, everything was on fire. Oh, apparently like the waterworks burned down. Ah, yes. So firefighters couldn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> the old flammable fire trick. <laughs> uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like privatized fire departments was a, was a big factor in the Great Chicago Fire, but uh, may have played a factor in like London Fire and DC mm -hmm. fires. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the first volunteer fire department in the United States was established in Philadelphia in, in 1736. Oh, go Philly. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, you had to pay for a lot of services. I mean, a lot. It's, it's almost like you could compare it to property taxes in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like a significantly less benign, and not that taxes are benign, but in comparison, a much more actively problematic uh, property tax situation. Yeah, I mean, it's... 
it's all socialism. <laughs> uh, it, you know, the world of the comic is a way for me to explore my ideas, both of what I think is right, but also the ideas of like, what does a government do for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of things that I think we all subconsciously have agreed that a government should do. And so in the absence of them, what would that world be like? Yeah. And especially in a world like that, what does a superhero comic look like? And that's, that's where I'm going. Yeah. Um, And, you know, of course, uh, it's also a big theme in cyberpunk, which is why I call it a cyberpunk comic as well. I think that's true. I would, I would firmly place it in that category. I've kind of been toying with the idea of calling it a dystopian solar punk because those are, those are really hip terms. Uh, solar punk is like this very idealistic, mostly an aesthetic, but just as you were saying, Sarah, like technology will save us from all of our problems kind of situation. I would not put it in solar punk um, because solar punk is more, you're right. Solar punk is more, um, what we would like the world to look like if we all like reused everything and everyone had solar cells and there was greenways everywhere and uh, benevolent robots, you know, helped us with everything, but they weren't, you know, we had no fear that they were going to take over and kill everyone. There's, (laughs) there's actually a very good book. um, The Psalm of the Wildborn by Becky Chambers, I believe it is, is a really great book. And it's, it's firmly solar punk. And I think that it would be more in that era of solar punk would be more leaning that direction. I think you're firmly into cyberpunk. And I mean, you could call it dystopian solar punk. I don't know what that means, but (laughs) hell, invent the term, do it. (laughs) Maybe it already exists. I don't know. Most of my inspirations are very solidly cyberpunk stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Snow Crash, um, Altered Carbon. Those are really big inspirations specifically for Robo. And then Neuromancer and Johnny Mnemonic and you know a lot of those movies like Blade Runner definitely are inspirations for like my thinking about science fiction stories and mm-hmm. my interest in that genre. Definitely. We talked about this last time and it was, I really, I really place Robo in those categories. I think that anybody who likes that genre, who likes those things would definitely be interested in Robo. Um, If you are just a listener and you haven't uh, read Jesse's comic yet, I totally suggest it. If you like those things, it's definitely a very fun jaunt into the mind of Jesse, <laughs> but also um, a dystopian world where there's no government and corporations are basically around, allowed to run the world and what that means for everybody else. Definitely. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the last things like on the theme and on the, the setting of the world that I really try to go for is um in a way, the story is sort of post-apocalyptic. It's not like in your face about it. And in the way it's very dystopian and it's, it's not a place that you would really want to live. 
Yeah. But I don't want the art to just be like straight grunge. Mm-hmm. The the Blade Runner aesthetic where it's just kind of dark and disgusting and you can tell just by looking at it that it's not a very friendly place is not what I actually want. Um, I kind of think of it as like, like if the whole world was an Apple store. That's the vibe I get from it. Like it's a veneer. Everything is yeah. a veneer over like this very much. Cause you talk about it. I think in the first or second issue, there are people that do not or cannot buy into the corporations and they basically live underground right they're everywhere yeah um the thing is if you have some money you can afford to live above them Mm -hmm. it reminds me of um this is probably possibly a movie neither of you have seen but the movie uh mystery men oh i've seen that i love that movie the there's a very sort of fine upstanding corporate face and sort of a very corrupt other side to that fine upstanding corporate face in mystery men. And that's about all I can, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. But <laughs> <laughs> what, how old is that movie? I don't know. Probably I think 20 it's 20 year years old. old. Yeah. It's from the nineties, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it came out after high school. So 2000s. 1999. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but it also um, shows the same people are responsible for both. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, is, was a fair point to make in 1999 and is a fair point to make in 2022, unfortunately. Yeah. Time yeah. is a flat circle. Uh, like I said, you can write the same punk songs today as you could in 1983. So this brings up like the conversation to me, this brings up the conversation we were having before Mm -hmm. we started uh, officially recording the podcast, which I thought was a great conversation about like, um, where do you go as an artist, as a creator, when everything feels really bleak? I feel like you kind of talked about like persevering and resilience um, when things are just just feel really bleak either personally or you know the world feels bleak it was really it was a nice thing that you said and I um I wanted to bring it up again I don't know if you remember what she said if not Emily we have I was gonna say let's just use the clip Uh, (laughs) Um, so going into the fourth issue I was you know I had a full head of steam I was doing well I had like this cadence all laid out I honestly almost had a schedule like for when the issues are going to come out yeah. And um, that just all kind of fell off a cliff. Uh, so I was feeling so good with the fourth issue. I think a lot of my podcasts were about like, yeah, you can totally do it. You know, I'm really starting to feel like I've, I've made it. And now um, probably the narrative is you've got to keep doing it, even when it's hard. Otherwise, it goes away, um, you know, which is an important lesson, I think, for me as a person, as well as as a comic creator. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. It's essentially yeah. resilience. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not so great at that. <laughs> yes, you are. I mean, you're still here. It's true. Yeah. No, I, I'm a lot better at resilience than I used to be. So resilience of you or resilience of your project? Well, probably of me, but, you know, the project is is an important part to learn to be resilient about and you know uh 
one of the other things that came up in a conversation with a friend uh, earlier today was that, you know, knowing where I'm headed seems to, it feels like it's helping. So one of the things that sort of stunted my momentum was the sixth issue will be the end of the first story arc. Okay. And, um, we're going on five. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the fifth issue. Fifth issue is written. It's been drawn. Like it's been done since January, but um, I didn't want to move into the sixth issue right away uh, with, you know, having Renzo do the art. So I wanted to get that written and then make sure all the crowdfunding stuff went out and then we would start. And uh, I just got stuck. Like I couldn't finish writing it. I wanted it to be good. I wanted to, to feel like the end of that story arc, like not the end of the story, obviously Robo is going to continue, but um, like I wanted it to feel like when you read it, you were, you finished that sixth issue and you had a little bit of closure and it just wasn't getting there. I mean, it still, it still isn't done. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is the main thing that you want to talk about is resilience and where you're going and trying to find a goal. And that's why, it, um, that's why it's taken like a little bit longer than you thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, that's good for anybody working on something creative to remember. It's interesting because when I personally feel bleak, it's very difficult to create. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not the kind of creative person who would have been a great like grunge songwriter or whatever. Uh, I, I don't get to draw a lot from like my, my own personal darkness for this stuff. However, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, I did suddenly get a lot of inspiration for the comic. And I think it's because I am already trying to write about like how much our current world is again, a veneer of a fairly dystopian place. Um, so when something happens in the real world, I'm, I'm feeling like, Oh, I can use that in the comic. Um, and I did, I actually shared one of those things with you, Sarah. I don't want to share it here because it is a major spoiler for the sixth issue. Yes. But uh, yeah, like some, some things popped into my head and I was like, oh, that's fucking dark. I'll put that yeah. in the comic. <laughs> it was dark. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil it either. Uh, I'm like, haha, I guess spoiler. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but it was really the, pretty dark. I'm yeah. interested to see what you do with it. It's the sort of thing that, you know, when the world starts to get really shitty, um, those are the kind of things that I can put into the comic. Um, and maybe if I was writing something a little bit more down to earth, I would be able to put more personal stuff into the comic. Um, but, it, you know, the... Robo is more of a, like a traditional, like system of the world kind of comic, as opposed to, uh, let's say like a comic like Love and Rockets, which is about, it's about superheroes, but it's really just about romance. Yeah. It's very sweet. Yeah. I don't think I'm good enough to write something on the level of Love and Rockets. So <laughs> I got a ways to go before I get there. I wouldn't say that. I would say that your mind is just firmly 
So from the way that I can see it from a third person view is that um, you're dealing with some heavy shit in Robo. And I appreciate that because it helps me kind of think of it differently. It's always nice to hear someone else's perspective on stuff and like take it from a viewpoint and then just extrapolate out like corporations obviously are out of control in a lot of places. And let's extrapolate that out into like, what if there was no government? What if they were actually beholden to absolutely no one, um, like a government or any kind of semblance of a government? And all they had to worry about was whether or not some other corporation was going to get mad and, you know, like have mech robots try to try to kill them or like basically kill everybody at a press conference. Like what if it was that kind of thing? And so it's always interesting for me to like see what cyberpunk does and where you go with it and where other people go with it. That's I think why it's one of my very favorite genres. Like it's just fun to see like how people are processing that stuff and how it helps other people process like what the hell are we going to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so to go back to like creativity, I've been dealing with writer's block for that sixth issue. And I think that the inspiration of things getting worse in the world makes it easier for me to move into the sixth issue, which is, you know, the end of the first story arc. Um, Because now I have a, better idea of where I want to go after that Uh and um Robo was a a character that I made up when I was a kid and I've done this first arc to try to introduce a lot of things but it's also in a small way feasting off of that original story uh, that I created as a kid which is that you know he's a superhero as his job and so knowing where I want to go with the story helps me move from uh, the story arc that is about the, the dream that I had of creating a comic into what is a story that I want to tell. And obviously I've been telling parts of that already, but part of the story that I want to tell is my map for how does somebody you know, save the world without saving the bad parts of the world. Yeah. That's an important question that I don't know there's an answer to. I'm interested to see where you go with that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Boy, I signed myself up for a big one there. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it'll, again, it'll probably be me exploring what I feel like that is. And I think one of the real benefits of of being a, a writer or, you know, creative in these ways is that I can put it into another character and they can make a mistake or they can even fail. Um, and it's, it's lower stakes while still getting the benefit of, of seeing how that would turn out. Yeah. Can you give us, can you give us a hint? You have thoughts on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I touched on it a little bit, it, you know, yeah, yeah. And Charles will eventually say, uh, why would I want to save this world? Um, you know, the next thing that a logical character would say is, 
okay, well, where do we go from here? How do we change the world? Until at this point in Robo, you know, up to even including issue five, Charles is naive. That's, uh, that's like his number one character trait. And um, in a way, I sometimes think of him as dumb, but I don't want him to be unintelligent. I just want him to be naive. Uh, so, you know, if you've read the third issue and there's the character Shuja, she's kind of there to, to help snap him out of it throughout the story when she shows up again. You know, she's going to be the one to call him out for being naive. And um, I want to explore that sort of awakening as a character uh, to try to go through it for people who haven't done it themselves. Uh, hopefully I can do that. That seems like it's going to be a hard one to pull off, but that's what I want to try to do. Wow. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's important. It's, yeah, go ahead, I Emily. I was gonna. I was gonna say almost the exact same thing. It's important, and it sounds like a worthy thing to explore as a process. Well, making comics is slow and definitely not easy. So I should probably do something meaningful with it while I'm trying to do it. So the power of story is important. Uh, I know you know this, Jesse, because I find that you're a natural storyteller. Even though I don't think you really know know it, you definitely are. But the power of story is important for people, obviously, as we've evolved. Um, We make up stories about how the world is. You both know that. Um, But this is also how we process a lot of stuff in our lives. Like, I'm sure all of us, every one of our listeners has a story that they grew up with or they've heard. And it just even though it wasn't real and it was fake story, it put things in perspective for them. There was something about the way the author put it that they just got it. It made them realize something about their lives, about other people's lives, whatever. And it's all like packed into a story that may have absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in the world, or it may have a lot to do with what's going on in the world. And I think that's one of the most powerful ways to reach people is through story. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a way, again, like for somebody to experience a situation that they are not specifically in or to see a different perspective of a situation that they would normally feel like they had figured out and it's safer to do that in a story. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's also something humans have done forever, both storytelling and listening. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So it ties deeply into just sort of being a person. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the first story ever told right after the Chicago fire. <laughs> <laughs> How many stories can I make up about the great Chicago fire in one podcast? It was probably more. Probably... As many, if not more, than were made up initially about the fire, because I'm sure <laughs> journalists were just saying whatever they felt like about it <laughs> in the 1870s. So yeah. I wonder if it was really true that the, that a cow kicked over a lantern. That can't be that. true. That's what I want to believe. <laughs> I want to believe that the Chicago fire was started by a cow kicking over a lantern. And the Chicago Cubs were cursed by a goat. Were they really? 
That was one of the stories for why it took them so long to win the World Series. <laughs> was that a farmer brought his goat to the game and they kicked him out and didn't refund his ticket and he was mad and he, he cursed them and they called it the curse of the goat. Yeah. Um, but I do really like the idea that the city of Chicago just has this adversarial magical relationship with animals. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Hatfields and McCoys, like, feud was over a pig, so. Was it really? Yeah. Huh. Probably, probably some Hatfields and some McCoys that made their way to Chicago. Probably a bunch of them. Yeah. They're just cursed families. Like, everywhere they go, <laughs> they bring curses upon everything. It was probably one of the Hatfields, like, goats. And the McCoys were working that day. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Fictional story count about Chicago is now up to three or four. Yeah. And then, yeah. And it all comes back from when the cow kicked over the lantern and it immediately burned down his neighbor's house. And that was the McCoy's house. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Half it's just always. The department shows up and we'll put the fire out. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're a private fire department and they don't like McCoy's. Right. Mm hmm. Yep, there's yet another story we've made up about the Chicago Fire and has have tied it into the Chicago Cubs. Right. You're welcome, Chicago. We love you. <laughs> so I, it's it's important that we tie things into Chicago because Robo is set in New Chicago, and I have never been to Chicago. I know you keep saying this, and I can't believe it. Like, wow, really? Seriously, yeah. we are all gonna have to go to Chicago. That's I'm down for that. Yeah. So the reason that it's set in New Chicago, this happened in a lot of things that I wrote when I was a kid or a teenager, is I knew that big importance. This this is my kid logic, by the way. Big important stories should be set in cities, but all of the stories were set in New York. So I wanted to pick a different city, and so I would often pick Chicago for my stories um, because it just felt like you know second second best city <laughs> sorry chicago <laughs> chicago is an amazing city um and i'm not saying that because i have family that lives there but <laughs> yeah it's it's a really cool city and i i definitely think that it's a good place for robo to be in because it's been so many different things like batman beyond yep. It was filmed in Chicago. Like, there's a bunch of people that say, like, they used some so and so parking deck in Chicago and it was crazy. And yeah, anyway. Well, and the other thing that I throw in in the comic, just a quick little nod to it, is that New Chicago is not actually where Chicago is. Mm -hmm. uh, I reserve, I haven't quite decided where I really want that to be yet, but. Um, you know, the, the lore there is that the corporation is just like, yeah, call it Chicago. Like people like that name. Let's just profit off of it. <laughs> that is hilarious. I love that. Mm -hmm. It feels like, I mean, RoboCop, very little of your story feels like RoboCop, but that specifically, I could see new Detroit being nowhere near Detroit. Yeah. Well, and, and that is, uh, that is, I think really fitting for the, for the, the whole message which is that um you know these corporations are really 
they're willing to do anything for a buck, including, you know, just steal the name of a beloved historical city. Yeah. So where would Chicago have gone then? Where did the AI go? Like, this is what I'm... That's a better uh, uh, question than my that's question. Uh... <laughs> no, I like your question too. Like, where did Chicago go? Why is there new Chicago? And where did the AI go? I have answers actually for all of those things. And I can't tell you any of them. Oh, well, y'all will have to read and back (laughs) his Kickstarter, which will be probably next week and when this episode comes out. (laughs) It should be live, I I imagine, because it's going live on Thursday. Yes. Awesome. I'll I'll link it. I'll be posting this on a Tuesday. So I will put a link in the description of the episode about where you can support Robo. But yes, your questions are sort of long-term story background things that I intend to answer. Uh, and I do have an idea for each one of those, but they will, they will not be answered in the fifth issue. <laughs> I kind of have an idea of where the AI went. Okay. I have little hints of it. I kind of know. I caught it maybe just a little bit. I don't, but I'm really obtuse in stories. I just, I just, I'm along for the ride. If I can predict something, then you have told a very simplistic story. So. (laughs) (laughs) One of my friends uh, got the major, the major reveal of the fourth issue from the first issue. And I was kind of upset about it, but I realized that it was probably a good thing. I mean, that means you put the story together properly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was my initial reaction was, ah, I can't believe you figured it out. And then my second reaction was, okay, no, that, that's probably good. <laughs> <laughs> was this the friend that you had known like your whole life who like basically helped you think of Robo? No, he knows all the stuff because he knows all the stuff. And also he edits all my scripts and, uh, you know, there are no surprises for Ben. Um, no, this is a friend of mine from LA. Oh, okay. Yeah, Ben knows the answer to uh, all of the the spoilers that I can't give as well. <laughs> nice. he's, he's my free editor. Oh, well, that's always nice. If you start making real money, you should probably pay him now. Sure, yeah. Right now, the comic makes negative money, but the help of the Kickstarters keeps it from being, you know, on par with a mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're on a podcast that makes negative money too. We're a good company (laughs) because we do it for the love of the world. We do it for love. (laughs) It's, it's a, as an unfortunate way of the world is that the work that people enjoy the most tends to pay the least. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, we had sort of talked about before, um, we formally started the episode uh, resilience in creation process and then sort of danced around the idea of intrinsic value. Mm. And so for like Sarah and I, we sort of started this podcast understanding that the only thing we'd likely ever get out of it was the intrinsic value. And so we actually took a huge long hiatus because we were busy people and, uh, we make it cause we do this cause we like it. And we talk to people that we think are cool, like Jesse. So what is the intrinsic value for you of 
creating this particular story? I, th I think, um, wow, I think you really actually like put a good name to it. Um, for a long time, it was finally doing it like to, to really make a comic book, which is something that I had always wanted to do. Um, and then it became, uh, like proving that I could, could keep it going. Um, and I think part of the problem that I've had is finishing the sixth issue is sort of a, a marker on, okay, well, I've proven those couple of things and, you know, the next goal would be making a collection, which would happen after the sixth issue. Uh, so the intrinsic value would have to be like, I really enjoy it, which I still do, but it does come with some of the things that you don't usually think of like, Oh, I have to market this. I have to get, uh, I have to run Kickstarters, which honestly I do not like running Kickstarters. It's, stressful for me and it's a lot of non-creative work but um so i think one of the challenges has been trying to decide how much that next level which still cannot be a day job is intrinsically valuable to me and i want to go there i want to like achieve the, whatever that next level might be, but it, it's kind of taken me a little bit to get into that. So uh, in addition to that, I think the next level of intrinsic value would be getting more people to read what I have written. And that would, that would be uh, really rewarding for me, but it does come with a lot of non-writing work. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Well, thank you actually for saying it in those ways. Like it kind of lined up a lot of things that they've been in my head, but maybe they didn't stick together. Yeah. Emily's really great at that. That's why I tell her most everything because she has a way of like saying things like she hears me and then says it differently. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah, totally. Very it's cool. a talent of yours, Emily, definitely. Um, so on intrinsic value, I wanted to state that like when Emily and I talk about this every once in a while for the podcast, I always say stuff like I spent too long helping people organize and downsize their lives for me to want to hawk toothbrushes on <laughs> a podcast that I do because I know where a lot of things go now. And I don't think the Pacific Ocean wants any more toothbrushes. So, um, yeah, so that's where a lot of it, the intrinsic value is for me is that I love doing this podcast and I love talking about interesting topics. And if I can manage it, I will never hawk toothbrushes, if, if you know, toothbrushes or other crap that nobody needs. You know, it's like one of those things, it's hard to be a creator and also not get caught up in the idea that it has to have some monetary value because that's a very, it's a very slippery slope in our, in our country and our culture is to like, it has to make this much money or it is not successful. 
you know? I struggle with that a huge amount, especially. Everyone does. But especially with the comic, because I do, I feel exactly the same way that you do about that. And I would love to be free of that feeling. But at the same time, the comic is a very expensive hobby. Like yes. without the, the fundraising and without the, the small amount of sales, like it quickly becomes a hobby that I can only do one issue per year, which is just is not enough to satisfy me. Um, so it, it is, it's like a weird balancing act. Um, and I think the times that I feel the least motivated are when I've spent too long doing like promoting it on social media or, you know, trying to chase down another avenue to, to sell the comic. Um, it's nice to get a win when those things do happen, but it's very exhausting. Um, oh, totally. It's too bad. I feel like that's a lot of the reason a lot of creators burn out. Like, is they just, it's really hard. The hustle is hard. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to do this year, and I don't think I'm going to end up getting to it, was to do a convention. Um, Because that was the traditional way that you start to build more of a fan base, more of a name for yourself. And that would be nice because it would be different. It would be in person, but it's with my schedule and work and all of that, it just hasn't quite played out where I had everything lined up to just do it when one came up. So hopefully I can do that next year um, and, and experience that part of it. Yeah. Well, and that also, I'm just going to bring everything back to a lot of the losses that we've had with pandemic disruption that has both included illness and avoiding it and also beyond that to social disruption is a massive loss of social connection. Yes. One of the key ways that a lot of writers, artists, illustrators connect with each other is in person and particularly at conventions with regards to things like comics. And so you pursuing that, maybe that's part of the change that you make in your own personal world in terms of making contacts with people and interacting with them directly. And that's part of what Sarah's trying to do with her litter deleters work. Uh, so I don't know. I think I'm just pulling this. I'm, I'm going to give you too. two, but if you drop any more major insights, Emily, we're going to have to cut the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has uh, been a very lonely few years for me personally. And I'm sure that's. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you there, actually. I think um, one of the big reasons that I wanted to do the convention was I, for a little while, I'd imagined that it was going to be this just sort of constant flow of positive interactions. And I did do a scouting mission to a a mid-sized convention earlier this year. And possibly, you know, subconsciously it worked in there. One of the big things that they, you know, people I talked to there said is bring somebody with you because you spend a lot of time sitting at the booth alone. And I was like, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) That's kind of a bummer. (laughs) Well, and you know, if you're not known, then you don't get mobbed. And if Mm -hmm. you are known, there's, there's that like impersonal aspect of it. So what Mm -hmm. you're really looking for is like that sweet spot where you, you kind of have some knowledge in the game you have some good interactions you know enough people who are there that you're still having a good time um yeah and so i think i i decided to 
to hold off or to get my my ducks in a row more before I, I went for it. Also, traveling by air right now is apparently a nightmare. So, yeah, not super excited about that either. Like taking a huge amount of heavy comic books on a flight across country or something like that. The big the big convention happening this coming weekend is, of course, San Diego Comic Convention. Oh, geez. Yep, that's happening starting on Thursday. Are you going to it? No, no. Uh, that is, uh, it's something I've been to many times when I did live in Los Angeles, but I'm aware now of how much of a absolute nightmare it is when you don't just live within driving distance. Yeah. Oh, conventions or something else. I mean, you've obviously been to one. I mean, have you been to one as a, like, not obviously as a comic book uh, creator, but as just someone who works at a convention for anything? No, only ever as a fan so far. Um, okay. So the having a booth would be a big new step for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to do a mid-sized one is to avoid the temptation of just being like, okay, that's cool. Uh, I made a hundred bucks. Now I'm going to enjoy the convention, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, to, to keep me on message would be to do like a medium sized one without that distraction of just like, there's so much cool stuff going on and I'm missing it. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it's definitely a good idea to go with people because then that way, yeah. One of you can walk around while the other ones, at the booth and you're not sitting there starving and getting hangry. Like it's definitely a good thing. Yeah. And talking to people is exhausting. And I say that as someone who loves to talk to people, like it is exhausting for me, even though I like pretty much talk to everyone. (laughs) I also really like to talk to people. I, try to tell myself that I would be good with it, but I'm sure that an entire weekend of answering the same questions would probably get pretty exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as Emily was talking about earlier and something that I've thought about a lot, uh, especially after the, t- the major portion of the pandemic is that we're so disconnected from each other. And I feel like so many people are discouraged or disheartened or like don't know where to go or what to do to like change anything. Um, so I feel like a lot of connection needs to happen some more with people. And that's why I have a volunteer group that does um, litter pickup. I've started a lot of different stuff and it's just it, it's a main part for me to like, first you have to connect people in order to get anything done. Like I can only do so much as one person, but once you start connecting other people, and I think that is going to be a major portion of like getting your ideas out there is to actually connect with people, which is going to be hard now that all of us are used to like sitting at home and hoping that our scream into the void of social media goes somewhere when only 2% of um, posts actually go anywhere are seen because of algorithms. Yep, definitely. Um, I think you're, you're definitely right about that. And I know I am more disconnected and also totally in that bucket of like, 
questioning how to connect now. Yeah. Um, I know it's, it's not true, but there's definitely like the social or the subconscious feeling that like people don't want to talk to you because after two years of people wearing masks and not, you know, trying to stay out of their way, it's, uh, it's difficult to train yourself back to, yeah, most people generally are happy to talk to somebody at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been difficult. It's, uh, that would be a major challenge, even if I didn't work from home. <laughs> <laughs> It makes me think about that. So Jesse and I on Saturday with uh, Jesse and I and my husband on Saturday, we went to lay in some hammocks um, near his house. And there's this lady that just stopped her car and yelled at us about how great the hammocks were. Like I have those kind of interactions all the time with people. And so I feel like people have things to say. They just don't know where to say them anymore. Yeah, uh, I was a little bit weirded out by that. And at the same time, you're right. It's totally natural. Um, and and uh, I think I said at the time, I was like, I, I feel weird, but I'm just going to let it go because there's no reason to feel weird about it. <laughs> People are hungry to talk to each other. I, I feel like that too. I go have ahead, noticed. Sorry. Well, I take my kid to playgrounds periodically and... Uh, the parents seem really hungry to talk to each other and the kids talk to each other and get along just fine. Um, it's interesting to see a playground as sort of a catalyst for conversation, but it's definitely the case. It's just, it's just very interesting, but people are also having weird conversations, uh, which I think is kind of a good thing. There's a lot less like, Hey, how are you doing? How's the weather? Sunny day. Unless it is like a 98 degree day, but I, I think that the way that people interact with each other is functionally changing and getting kind of peculiar in a way that I'm kind of here for because we all want to talk to somebody. Indeed. Definitely like fewer parasocial relationships and more actual relationships, which is, a, I'm going to just yank it back to the comic book. Uh, Please do. That, that is uh, it's, also in there subtly but like page one issue one character Anna rocks is essentially meant to be a, a commentary on social media and creating parasocial relationships um there are plenty of people who are more in tune with somebody that they watch on uh twitch or on youtube than they might be with their neighbors and like know more about what goes on in their lives. And uh, that's not, it's not real. <laughs> so um, that is another thing that I, I do put into the comic a little bit because it is again, another thing that kind of makes our world a bit of a dystopia. I'm right there with you. And I actually really like the character of Anna Rocks because of that. Like I knew exactly who she was supposed to be and like what she was supposed to symbolize. And I appreciated that. I was like, I am here for that. Like social media. I have so many opinions on social media, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we're trapped in it, but at the same time, it's so bloody fake. It really, really is. 
Um, so I, I totally get that. It's like people are more involved in what they think is a relationship with someone on social media. And there's actually been studies that have said that it actually hits all the brain centers as, you know, like actually having a relationship with someone, but you actually are not having a relationship with anyone. So right. it's, it's weird. Go ahead. I, th- I was going to say that um, one of the most interesting things about like, I don't know, formally becoming a creator is how chained you are to social media. I went through, you know, about four months of the pandemic and I was like, I got to get off this social media stuff. And I was like days away from deleting it all. And then I was like, oh, wait, I'm going to need this to promote the comic book. Crap. And now it's (laughs) not, you know, now you can't like, can't delete your Facebook. Uh, You lose all those people who only use Facebook as potential eyes on your creative work. Um, It feels very trapping um, because I don't particularly enjoy any of them. I I like Twitter a fair amount. Um, I'm on Discord a lot, but like, I don't love Twitter. I don't get excited to use it. It is a, it's an important part of like staying connected to the community is pretty much how I see it. And I think that's a healthy way to see it. And I think the problem of the next five to 10 years is people trying to figure out the balance between social media and actual life. I think it's just like anything. You just have to learn how to do it. You have to learn that, you know, it's a tool just like the white pages. Like you can't be on it all the time, just like you can't be drunk all the time. Otherwise you're you know, you're going to have a lot of health issues. I think it's one of those things like in the next five years, we're going to see a lot more people like trying to really grapple with social media, what it actually is and what it actually means to us. And I think it's going to change in a big way. That's just my idea. Like, I think that people are like, just like Emily was saying, they're really hungry for conversation and real conversation. They're kind of getting the idea that, after the pandemic, they're not really connecting with anyone. They're just like kind of liking posts and that doesn't do anything, but you know, like a post (laughs) pretty much it's not actual interaction. Totally. I hope you're right. That's, uh, that's one that I probably don't feel very hopeful about, but I think you are right. At least in the, in the sense that it does have to change eventually. Well, I, it just makes me think of all the people who are addicted to World of Warcraft 15 years ago. Like all those people are, you know, they're around now for the most part. And they yes, may I look. I am here on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they're still around. Like, but you don't play World of Warcraft anymore, do you? No, I am between relapses right now. <laughs> I think my brother and his wife played it and I think they still do, but not, I don't think to the extent they did in college. Yeah. Uh, it's still around. It's definitely like there. I think you, I think you are still correct that eventually people will burn out on any distraction. Um, 
and the question is whether or not something else will be there to jump into the into the into the gap um the attention economy as they're now calling it that's exactly what it is um I really feel like people, more and more people are going to come to terms with it, or at least try to come to terms with it and what connection to real people actually means. Um, I really feel like that's where it's going. I know that distraction is wonderful, especially when you feel like the world is trash, but it obviously is not getting us anywhere. So we're going to have to connect with people and make it easier to connect with people um, in real life to actually do something. Yeah, definitely. But if that's too hard, you can buy my comic book. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good starting point. (laughs) It's a good starting point for anyone who's like, "Mm, I like this idea. You can buy Jesse's comic book. It'll distract you for maybe 20 minutes. Oh, I don't know. It took me like half an hour. Like, well, so I read it like I shallow read your comic and then I read it again because there's so much. Like I was saying, the world is rich and there's a lot of stuff to catch. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to gauge because what I one of the things I notice is that like I will look at the pages hundreds of times for very long periods of time. So when I see them in print, I'm like, wow, this looks really great, but I've already read them so many times. It's, it's not like a reading for me. Mm -hmm. Totally. So now that we've decided that um, you can distract yourself with Jesse's comic and see his commentary eventually on how he thinks that we can say, well, Robo can save the world or what Robo thinks about what will save the world. Where can we find Robo and Jesse Kepler? Where do you go, Jesse? All right. So I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram as Moose Cat Comics. That's Moose Cat Comics. Uh, I also have my website, moosecatcomics.com. And uh, if you're looking on Kickstarter, you can search for Robo and you'll find probably my first four Kickstarters, as well as the fifth one, which is in pre-launch as of now, July 19th, but is launching um, this Thursday, the 21st of July. Uh, So that'll be uh, the Robo 1 to 5 Kickstarter. And you can get any, any or all of the previous issues, as well as any or all of the previous uh, backer rewards. Um, And, uh, you know, check out a really awesome comic, both digital or physical. And the stickers are awesome. FYI. (laughs) I am a big fan of the stickers myself. That's why I keep making them. Uh, And yeah, this one I'm going to start, I have a, a Renzo and I did an homage to Fantastic Four number one, so the the comic that started the Silver Age of comic books uh, with a robo theme. And that's going to be available, I believe, as a postcard and a fridge magnet. So kind of excited to have those in my house as well. Awesome. The art for it came out really nice, and I just need to, to mock it up with the title. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. It was awesome to talk to you about in our rambling conversation about comics and saving the world and all the good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely.